Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me on the Facebook page throughout the week. Uh, I posted several things there this morning, I believe. Uh, sorry, it's been a long week for me. Everything's kind of bled into uh, the next day. Uh, and so, yeah, I try and post things there throughout the week when I get a chance. And uh, a lot of the stuff there is a little more visual, things that don't really translate well over radio, uh, sometimes just cute animal pictures pictures, things like that, usually from um, the perspective of scientists who are talking about those cute animals, but it doesn't hurt that they're just simply cute animals. Um, so yeah, definitely check out the Facebook page during the week for other um, for other news and uh, things like that that I'm not going to get to on the actual show. And you can also listen to this and other episodes as a podcast uh, on your favorite podcasting source, uh, such as iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Spotify. Okay, so let's start tonight by talking a little bit about Jeff Bezos. Um, he is very much in the news these days. Uh, there was a... <laughs> Uh, Stephen Colbert did a delightful bit about his latest rocket launch uh, that I watched this morning. And um, yeah, it was quite the thing to see. <laughs> and so, yeah, he is in the news. So I did want to talk about him a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm not a fan of Jeff Bezos. I'm also not a fan of Elon Musk. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, I understand their interest in expanding humanity's reach into space, uh, but I think that both of them uh, make fundamental mistakes about science and honestly humanity. Um, and so, yeah. So let's stop, start off with a bit of social commentary about this before we get into the actual sciencey stuff, because I just really wanted to talk about this because these sort of, uh, you know, billionaire, uh, sort of Bruce Wayne types, it seems, uh, just are out there trying to act as if they are going to save humanity. And it kind of annoys me. So since this is my platform, I'm going to soapbox for a moment. Uh, and so, yeah. So Bezos remarked on his wealth recently and of course, that wealth is $112 billion, billion with a B, at last count. And also, uh, FYI, Amazon did not pay any taxes in the United States last year, apparently. Just FYI. Uh, and so what he said was, the only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That is basically it. Now, I immediately wanted to yell at him all of the ways in which that money could be truly better spent. For instance, on basic education or poverty relief or millions of microloans to women in the developing world just off the top of my head. There are so many ways that this money could be used other than space travel. I just, the only thing that came to his mind was space travel. 
I just think there is a fundamental problem with leaving our future in the hands of these ultra wealthy, let's face it, mostly men. And, you know, I don't fault him for wanting to do the big flashy thing to develop basically his own version of NASA. Uh, He and Musk are in this sort of tug of war to try and create this new privatized version of space. But it does leave me feeling a bit flat when it comes to him trying to make this about humanity. Uh, This isn't a humanitarian thing. This is an ego thing. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. So far, we haven't found any place that's even remotely as habitable as Earth. And of course, you know, I harp on this a bit, but I think it's very important to remember as we talk about these sorts of things that it's much more important from my perspective that we work on fixing this planet. Uh, As uh, Macron said the other day to Congress, there is no planet B. And to have these ultra wealthy men out there making this idea up that there is a planet B, that we can get to the stars and that's how we'll uh, make humanity great again. It just, it's very frustrating to me. And I just, I just don't understand how they see this unless someone develops a quantum leap in technology that allows us to terraform another, terraform, excuse me, another planet or to instantly travel vast amounts of space in order to basically hunt for another Earth, then living anywhere else is going to be next to impossible. It just is. There is no reason to suspect that we will suddenly be able to just have a get-out-of-Earth-free card. Um And so it's very frustrating to me. And so, yeah. And sometimes, getting back to science, these billionaires, quote-unquote visionaries, just say silly things. (laughs) And that was the original thing that I read um, that sort of set me off on this tangent about uh, space travel and how I am in many ways against it. Uh, In a you know, I am all for probing the stars. I'm all for basic research into uh, space. I am absolutely 100% on board with uh, what NASA is doing for the most part. Um, I think robots in space is really a very awesome thing to be doing. And I am 100% in favor of all of that. Uh, But there does seem to be this nouveau feeling among a lot of these ultra rich uh, you know, gentlemen who are out there doing these big projects that space is this panacea for all of our problems. And it just, it really isn't. So what thing did he say the other day? Well, he was recently doing an interview and told Matthias Dopfner, uh, CEO of the German megamedia corporation Axel Springer, Let me give you just a couple of numbers. If you take your body, your metabolic rate as a human, it's just an animal. You eat food, that's your metabolism. You burn about 100 watts. 
your body, or, sorry, your power, your body is the same as a 100 watt light bulb. We're incredibly efficient. Your brain is about 60 watts of that. Now, that may seem like a fairly innocuous and reasonable statement, but it's actually really, really wrong. <laughs> and so Sam Wong, a neuroscientist at Princeton, Uni Princeton University and a co-author of the book Welcome to Your Brain, uh, told Live Science recently that the numbers are actually much smaller. The brain only uses about 15 watts of the total 70 watts that a typical person uses in a day. That puts the percentage at closer to 20% rather than Bezos's 60% claim. And so, again, this isn't a huge deal, but it's this kind of sort of blasé attitude about science that really I find hard to take. And so Wong writes in his book that the brain uses the energy equivalent to roughly that required for lighting the refrigerator in the back of uh, the light in the back of your refrigerator. And basically how we found this out was there was an experimenter in the 50s and 60s. Uh, his name was Louis Sokoloff. And what he did was he traced glucose, which is the body's energy source, uh, throughout the body. And he traced it and figured out how much different parts of the body were using. And so even in children, the amount of energy used only gets up to about 50%. So obviously kids are growing, their brains are growing at an enormous rate when they're very young. And so it is using up a lot of energy. And what I find even more funny about this is that Bezos actually donated $15 million in 2011 to his alma mater, Princeton, in order to establish the Bezos Center for Neural Circuit Dynamics at the Neuroscience Institute, where Wong teaches. <laughs> now, again, I bring up this story because I think it's dangerous to trust the future of science and technology to a small cadre of ultra-wealthy private individuals. This is why it's so important to me to continue to fight for publicly funded education in the sciences, for publicly funded science, for investment in basic research using public funds, and for publicly funded science to be the best available science regardless of political leanings. And so we're seeing how this is being just decimated right now in our government. The EPA is just, every time I read something else about the EPA, I just despair because it is so clear that there is a political agenda that is overriding all sense of real science at the EPA. And it's just, it's so frustrating. Um, they have this new, this new quote unquote transparency rule that says that basically they're only going to use data that is completely available publicly. Now that may sound reasonable, but basically what that means is that they are cutting off vast swaths of data that is not available because it is proprietary, because it belongs to people who have not yet published uh, or who have published but have not published in public forums. And we can have a whole debate about 
public versus private, uh, you know, paywall uh, publishing. But fundamentally, this is meant to cut off large swaths of good data from being able to be used at the EPA. And it's just, it is absolutely a ploy and nothing else. It is meant to frustrate and stymie the scientists who work at the EPA in order to actually do their jobs. And so this is something that is just, it's really, really frustrating. Um, And I'm really, it's what I'm really passionate about at the moment, as you can tell, Um, is just constantly reminding people that this is not the way it's supposed to work, that science is supposed to be supported by our government. And it's supposed to be supported by our government, whether or not you like the results. And that's a big thing. Um, It tends to be that when government officials support science, it's when it actually supports what they want to know or what they believe. So for instance, uh, when the... um, the National Institute for Complementary Medicine has continually found that there is nothing uh, to homeopathy and acupuncture and things like that, that they don't work. And they were hauled in front of Congress because Congress, uh, the congressman who created this department said, what are you doing? You haven't, you're, you're telling us that this stuff doesn't work. And, you know, that's not what you were supposed to do. And clearly that shows the incredible just bias and just the the basic misunderstanding of how science works that these politicians have. And it's just very frustrating and we need to keep fighting against it because basic science is the way that we actually do save the planet. Um, It's not pretty and it's not flashy most of the time. But it leads to real breakthroughs that do lead to real results. And the amount of support that we are putting in as a country has plummeted. And it's a real problem. Okay, let's move on now and talk about less controversial subjects. So uh, I guess the only reason, the only way this next story would be controversial is if you believe in the flat earth. I hope you don't believe in the flat earth. (laughs) Please don't believe in the flat earth. The earth is a globe. I promise. Um, It's not a conspiracy. It would have to be the vastest conspiracy ever uh, for it to be an actual conspiracy. Um, So yes, the earth is definitely a obloid spheroid. Um, So yes. Okay. So this is actually a really cool story. One of the things that I love talking about is the wealth of knowledge that is already contained in museums and collections that are actually just waiting to be analyzed by someone with the proper question or just literally waiting to actually be analyzed because they were found put in a box and somebody said, oh, I'll get to that and then never did. And so uh, the other part of this is obviously, uh, in case you haven't noticed, if you're a regular listener, it should be pretty obvious that I'm very much into history and archaeology, as well as uh, the more sort of hard sciences. So this story was very exciting to me. Two researchers from Queen's University, Belfast, in Northern Ireland, medievalist Marilina Cesario and astronomer Pedro Lacerda, 
are teaming up to search medieval tapestries, scrolls, and manuscripts in order to search for signs of the mysterious Planet Nine. Now, again, with conspiracy theories, this is not Nibiru uh, of conspiracy fame, the supposed uh, rogue planet that is going to come and, you know, kick off Ragnarok or whatever. Uh, this is an actual planet that astronomers have positive posited is actually orbiting the sun uh far enough out in the solar system that we're currently unable to detect it, uh, though we are looking for it. Uh, there is the Subaru um, telescope on Mauna Kea is actually currently some of the time is being used to actually look for signs of it in our solar system. But there are other ways to detect it. And so uh, Cesario notes that we have a wealth of historical records of comets in Old English, Old Irish, Latin, and Russian, which have been overlooked for a long time. Early medieval people were fascinated by the heavens as much as we are today. Now, of course, you're probably asking, well, how does this help find a mysterious planet that we can't see with powerful telescopes? Well, Medieval illustrations and depictions of comets are the key. We can take the orbits of comets currently known and use a computer to calculate the times when those comets, comets would be visible in the skies during the Middle Ages, Lacerda noted. The precise times depend on whether our computer simulations include Planet 9. So in simple terms, we can use medieval comet sightings to check which computer simulations work best, the ones that include Planet 9 or the ones that do not. And of course, this is exciting uh, work because it's very interdisciplinary. And in fact, this was part of a interdisciplinary um, call that was put out by the UK's Leverhulme Trust. And so they actually said to people, pitch us interdisciplinary projects for grants and, uh, you know, that combine the arts and the sciences. And so they were able to do this. And so as part of the project, they developed an exhibition for the Ulster Museum in Belfast called Marveling at the Skies, Comets Through the Eyes of the Anglo-Saxons. And so that is a showing of both modern images of space and medieval depictions of astronomical events, such as the passing of Halley's Comet from the Bayou Tapestry. And of course, I will give a shout out to fiber artists by reminding you that the Bayou Tapestry is not a tapestry. It is actually Needlepoint. Um, just as an FYI, uh, Trivia question. <laughs> so the Anglo-Saxons of the early Middle Ages would have actually called comets Fiodaxa. Fiseda, um, perhaps. It's F-E-A-X-E-D-A. -E -E and I do not know how to pronounce that. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, but basically it meant long-haired stars. <laughs> and they weren't thought of simply as, you know, signs from God, the way that we often depict it, but they were actually seen as natural phenomena that were interesting and needed to be documented. Uh, and so Cesario notes that they demonstrated a genuine interest in astronomy and an attempt to rationalize and systematize the world around them. So it wasn't just 
sort of noticing things and putting them there because they were there. They were actually trying to do research. And Lacerda remarks that it is fantastic to be able to use data about a thousand years old to investigate a current theory. Now, again, this is part of that sort of idea that I am always trying to remind people of that we have these ideas about the past and they're generally not very accurate. And so people generally think of the early Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of bad things going on at that time. Um, the church was very powerful and they were doing a lot of book burning. Um, yikes. Um, and so, you know, it was it was not a great time, but there were still a lot of things going on. There were still people doing uh, genuine learning and exploration. And it was happening both in Europe and, of course, throughout the world, because there are other people in the world other than Europeans. Um, I also like to remind people of that. So, yeah, humans are curious people. And they constantly surprise us with their ability to understand complex things. It's one of the things that sort of actually vaguely gives me hope for the future, um, because I'm hoping that uh, the basic instincts of our species to explore and figure things out will win out at the end. Um, even though in our current state, I do worry that we will manage to uh, destroy ourselves before we sort of hit the next roll of the wheel. But um, fingers crossed. <laughs> and so, yeah. So thinking of objects waiting to be discovered in museums, uh, this is a big one. And it's been sort of all out there. So you may have noticed it um, or even read about it already. But researchers have pieced together the three-dimensional skull of a toothed bird, which represents a key turning point in the evolution between dinosaurs and birds. Right under our noses this whole time was an amazing transitional bird, said Yale paleontologist Bart Anjan Bular, principal investigator of a study that was published in the journal Nature. It has a modern-looking brain along with a remarkably dinosaurian jaw muscle configuration. And so the skull belongs to an early avian dinosaur called Ichthyonaurus dispar. And so that would have the they would have lived around 100 million years ago in here in North America. The first skull fragments were found in the 1870s and were examined by Yale's O.C. Marsh, uh, one of the most famous early paleontologists, and were even uh, looked at by Charles Darwin. And so basically the specimen would have looked something like a toothed seabird, apparently. Uh, and so basically what happened was that after the initial discovery no new specimens were found. So they just basically had this one specimen that was really interesting, but then it just kind of got put on a shelf and people were hoping that other specimens would come in and then they didn't. And so, yeah. Um, and, but luckily a Yale team led, um, a Yale led team has reported on new specimens, which feature three dimensional cranial remains, including a complete skull and two cranial elements that were missed when the original specimen was cataloged. Now, these new specimens shed important light on that transition between dinosaur and bird. And so basically, uh, 
This specimen includes the first example we have of an actual bird beak. The first beak was a horn-covered pincer tip at the end of the jaw, reports Bular, who is also assistant curator in geology and geophysics at the Peabody uh, Museum, which is at Yale. The remainder of the jaw was filled with teeth. At its origin, the beak was a precision-grasping mechanism that served as a surrogate hand as the hands transformed into wings. And so what the team did was they took CAT scans of the specimen and so there were several several bits of the specimen, bits of specimen, say that three times fast. <laughs> and so some of them came from the Peabody, but also there were specimens from the Sternberg Museum of Natural History in Kansas, the Alabama Museum of Natural History, the University of Kansas Biodiversity Institute, and the Black Hills Institute of Geological Research. Lead authors Daniel Field from the Milner Center for Evolution at the University of Bath, England, and Michael Hansen of Yale. Um, and so part of the reason I talk about that is because it shows how, how interdependent researchers are on each other and how you have these international teams often where you have people who are working both in Europe and America or America and Asia or Asia and Europe and you know there's a lot of cross mingling going on with these teams and it's really important and it's something that I think is very essential in order to continue for people to be able to get at the most information that they can and so I liked that this was a pretty diverse group of people. The fossil record provides our only direct evidence of the evolutionary transformations that have given rise to modern forms, said Field. This extraordinary new specimen reveals the surprisingly late retention of dinosaur-like features in the skull of Ichthyonaurus, one of the closest known relatives of modern birds from the age of reptiles. And Ichthyornis dispar was a true hybrid, giving the researchers new information about how modern bird skulls evolved. Besides having a trans transitional beak, I dispar would have had a brain similar to that of a modern bird, but with a temporal region of the skull that was much more closely aligned with dinosaurs. This actually indicates that the brain evolved faster than the skull as the transformation to modern birds proceeded. Ichthyornis would have looked very similar to today's seabirds, probably very much like a gull or tern, said Hansen. The teeth probably would not have been visible unless the mouth was open, but covered with some sort of lip-like extraoral tissue. Now, Bular's lab has actually been working hard in recent years studying various aspects of vertebrate skulls and actually working on the origins of the avian beak. The lab has actually traced the evolution of the skull along the entire lineage from reptiles to bird and found that the skulls of reptile brains were fairly uniform. However, it was at the point where dinosaurs began to turn into birds and then actually became birds that the skull began to transform to make room for bigger brains. 
We suggest that this relationship is found across all vertebrates with bony skulls and indicates a deep developmental relationship between the brain and the skull roof, wrote Bular in a previous um, report. What this implies is that the brain produces molecular signals that instruct the skeleton to form around it, although we understand relatively little about the precise nature of that patterning. Now, on this new set of findings, he concludes, each new discovery has reinforced our previous conclusions. The skull of Ichthyornis even substantiates our molecular findings that the beak and palate are patterned by the same genes. The story of the evolution of birds, the most species-rich group of vertebrates on land, is one of the most important in all of history. It is, after all, still the age of dinosaurs. Uh, Cue Jurassic Park music, obviously. (laughs) Okay, so it is time for us to take a break. So uh, we are going to do that. I'm going to play some PSAs and some uh, show promos, and then we will be back in a few minutes, and we will talk about a horse that was very well loved. Hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out! <laughs> uh, oh. oh, my God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? 
Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So, Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Base with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to talk about a horse who was very much loved during life. And we know that uh, because we found his burial. Now, last week, I started out the show talking about dog burials. And so, like, the next day I saw this story and I was like, oh, I think I should talk about that too because it's really interesting. I'm really interested in these stories of um, early people and their connection to animals. I think it's a really fascinating story. topic and so I hope you do too. Now this particular horse was a workhorse. She would have been a chariot horse and she was ceremonially interned in the Nile Valley more than 3,000 years ago. The body was carefully prepared, wrapped in a shroud, and surrounded by grave goods. The horse's remains have been dated to around 949 BCE. Now, this is considered the most complete horse burial from the period ever found. Now, the remains were discovered in 2011 in what is now Sudan, but at the time was the outpost of Tombos. Now, this was an outpost actually founded in 1450 BCE by the Egyptians, in the kingdom of Nubia. So it was actually a literal outpost in the kingdom of Nubia uh, for the Egyptians. And the Nubians were their main rivals to the south. So this was definitely um, a bit of a fraught border, shall we say. Now, the the outpost actually would go on to separate from Egypt and become an important Nubian city. Excavations at the site have found Egyptian influence, but also distinct signs of Nubian daily culture, which continued throughout the life of the city. The site contained a funerary complex with a chapel and pyramid above ground, connecting to a shaft in the temple, which fed into multiple chambers that had multiple tombs. 
Around 200 people were found in those tombs, representing several generations of elite families, along with the usual pottery, tools, and decorative objects that you find in the typical Egyptian burial. However, unlike other more northerly burials in the heart of Egypt, very few animals were found. The horse burial, located in the shaft underneath the tunnel at around five feet below the surface, was actually a surprise. It was clear that the horse was an intentional burial, which was super fascinating, noted Michel Bouzon, a bioarchaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at Purdue University. The horse's skeleton still had bits of chestnut and white fur clinging to the lower hind legs. The decayed remains of the shroud allowed for dating the burial, and so that came out to between 1005 and 893 BCE. A carved beetle, a, a carved scarab beetle, was found near the remains, as well as parts of what was most likely the animal's brittle. And this is actually really cool because it represents the oldest example of iron thus far found in Africa. And it also represents that this was a very important animal because iron would have been a very expensive uh, metal at that time. I mean, this is the first iron that you that they have found in Africa um, or the oldest, I should say, not the first. Obviously, there's plenty of iron in Africa. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, this horse was clearly loved in life, which I think is really fascinating. It was clearly a central part of the people who owned its life. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell why or how, but it's just so fascinating to me. And so they were able to analyze uh, the horse's teeth and bones, and the researchers used those to conclude that it was a mare that died between 12 and 15 years of age. Now, they were able to tell that it was most likely a chariot horse because there were signs of stress in the ribs and spine. However, the advanced age of the animal showed that it was, again, clearly well cared for in life as well as death. Now, horse burials actually became more common in both in Egypt and Nubia between 728 and 657 BCE. But this burial suggests that such uh, ceremonial burials were actually already gaining symbolic power in the e early period in Nubia. The placement and contents of the grave suggest that the horse was a centerpiece in the lives of the people who buried it. Again, it was clearly well-loved and mourned. Um, and I just think that's such a fascinating story. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where there's so many amazing novels out there and fictional tales. But sometimes I just really wish I could know why this family loved this animal so much or this individual. Maybe this individual didn't have a family and this horse was a companion. Um you know, there are plenty of people who have animal companions because they don't have anyone else. And I just think it would be so fascinating to know why this animal was interred with such ceremony and deference. And so, yeah, uh, but unfortunately, we can only sort of guess. But 
while we're on the subject of animal burials, uh, this is slightly different. Um, this is not a lovingly buried pet. Uh, this is quite the opposite. Uh, it is a new excavation in the Philippines, which has found a um, site where there are butchered rhino and other animal bones. Uh, and this actually is very exciting, though, because it places hominids on the island of Luzon some 709 thousand years ago. So not only did the bones show signs of butchering, but stone tools were actually found within the site. Now, the original inhabitants most likely reached the island via uprooted trees or primitive watercraft um, in the sense of uh, probably rafts of vegetation or something like that. And, you know, there's, we're actually going to talk about the debate here um, about whether or not these sort of movements to islands were purposeful or were accidental. Um, and so, so far, especially um, in these deeper water areas, it's usually considered to have been, you know, accidental or um, some sort of natural movement, not a actual um, purposeful movement via actually deciding I'm going to go to this island. Now, the site was found in the landlocked northern region of Kalinga and contains more than 400 animal bones and 57 stone artifacts. And actually, they found three-fourths of the rhino. Like, it was most of a rhino. You could definitely tell. Um, and 13 of those rhino bones show distinct marks of butchering with cut and pounding marks that suggest both that the meat was being taken off the bone and also the marrow was being removed. And this is according to bioarchaeologist Thomas Inguicio of the National Museum of Natural History in Paris and his colleagues. Now, besides the remain of the rhino, were also fossils of brown deer, monitor lizards, freshwater turtles, and the extinct stegodon, which is an animal-like elephant that lived um, in that region at the time. Researchers used enamel in one of the rhino's teeth, along with quartz found above and below the layer of the site, to determine that it was approximately 709,000 years old. They actually used a technique called electron spin resonance, is, which is the procedure that measures the buildup of electrons as materials are exposed to radiation over time. It's kind of the opposite of uh, carbon dating. And so the quartz in the bottom layer dated to around 727,000 years uh, ago, the rhino tooth to around 709,000 years, and the quartz above fit to 701,000 years. Independent experts have reviewed the evidence and found it compelling. So previous to this, the earliest evidence of hominids in the Philippines was actually a toe bone, just a lone toe bone that had been found from approximately 66,700 years ago. Now, there's no way of knowing whether the individual descended from the population at Kalinga or represented a later mig migrant population. And of course, we also don't necessarily know what uh, species of hominid it would have been. It was most likely Homo erectus. We know that Homo erectus was in Java and China um, by this period. 
And um, we know, for instance, that it's not Homo sapiens because Homo sapiens didn't evolve until hundreds of thousands of years later in Africa. But the conjecture is that just because no hominid remains, oh, it's only conjecture, sorry, um, I should say it's only conjecture because no hominid remains were actually found at the site. It was just the tools and the marks left by obvious butchering. Now, part of the reason that researchers are cautious is because 3,000 kilometers to the south is the island of Flores. And that is where uh, you probably remember a couple of years ago now, um, four or five years ago, I want to say, the uh, specimens of Homo florensis were found. And that is the sort of very small hominid species that was dubbed the hobbit. And so they don't want to make any pronouncements that it was Homo erectus because we just don't know. And so I think it's important to remember that sometimes you have to be cautious because even though you think it might be something, some other specimen just pops into existence um, or is discovered, I should say. I don't want to um, imply that anything like that happens, but you end up with a specimen that just completely changes how you think about uh, the area. And again, part of the other thing that they are talking about is that, again, they don't think that Homo erectus was necessarily doing this on purpose. So it's hard to tell how they would have gotten there. And so Susan Anton, a paleoanthropologist at New York University, uh, but who was not involved in the study, uh, commented on it. And she said, I've been studying H. erectus for a long time, and I think they are pretty clever. The presumption has been that Homo erectus didn't, at least purposefully, disperse over water. But the more places you find that, hap that happening, then the more likely it becomes that they had some kind of control over it. But that kind of a conclusion is way off in the distance. <laughs> so just to be clear... And in fact, on the other side of the world, there is actually research that has been building a case for Stone Age seafaring, at least in the Mediterranean. And so these, of course, would be a little bit further up the scale in time. So we're talking about uh, Neanderthals and early modern humans. So even if this turns out to be true, it wouldn't support um, anything going on in the Philippines, just to be clear as we switch tracks. And so it turns out that these ancient sailors, again, uh, as I just noted, might have been Neanderthals. Uh, they might have also been Homo sapiens, or it might have been a combination of both. And so researchers had suspected that uh, it might be the case for a while now, uh, there had been stone tools found that dated to around 130,000 years ago on the Greek Isle of Crete. However, basically, most researchers uh, were skeptical of that at the time. Alan Simmons, an archaeologist at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, actually gave an overview recently of recent finds. And so he did that at the... Uh, meeting of the Society for American Archaeology that was held recently. And he's starting, they're starting to convince people. 
The orthodoxy until pretty recently was that you don't have seafarers until the early Bronze Age, noted archaeologist John Cherry of Brown University, an initial skeptic. Now we are talking about seafaring Neanderthals. It's a pretty stunning change. And in fact, the evidence isn't just that they may have ended up on islands, but that they did it purposefully, which is why we say seafaring. The earliest incontrovertible evidence for boat making, however, comes from the Netherlands and only dates to around 10,000 years ago. The first evidence of sails comes from Egypt's Old Kingdom around 2500 BCE, and it's not until 2000 BCE that there is conclusive evidence of sailors crossing open oceans, traveling between India and Arabia. Um, and interesting side note, there's a great program um, where somebody, uh, they looked at depictions of boats in Egypt, and they actually built a uh, replica of a uh, ship that was found, I think, in one of the temples to Hepshetzit, and they sailed it in the Red Sea, proving that the Egyptians could have sailed not only down the Nile, but in actually the Red Sea or even the Mediterranean. Um, and that's a fascinating aside, and you should, I will try and track down a link to that um, documentary because it's really fascinating. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Um, but getting back to uh, Neanderthals, there's been an increasing amount of stone tools and occasional bone fragments found throughout Eurasia, and especially in the, isle the area of the Greek Isles. We know that modern humans made it to Australia by 65,000 years ago, and of course, we know that they had already been in Indonesia for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, this was long thought, again, to have been accidental. However, in 2008 and 2009, Thomas Strasser of Providence College in Rhode Island co-led a Greek-U.S. team with archaeologist Curtis Runnels of Boston University. They discovered hundreds of stone tools near the southern coastal village of Placius in Crete. And so they found tools and picks and cleavers and scrapers and bifaces and everything that would have been in the toolkit of an ancient Neanderthal. And they found them in such a large quantity that they really didn't think that this could have been accidental. The tools most closely resembled Ascalian tools, uh, which were used by Homo erectus, and then until around 130,000 years ago by Neanderthals. The site of this cache, however, wasn't perfect. Um, the Layers had been disturbed, and so obviously that led to continued skepticism. And, but it did lead people to look around for other things. And so as you move north in the Mediterranean, other sites began to be discovered. A Greek-Canadian team co-led by Tristan Carter of McMaster University uncovered a cache of tools embedded in a chert quarry. These displayed a more sophisticated technology associated with the Mousterian toolkit used by both Neanderthals and modern humans. Carter is still in the midst of publishing his work, so we didn't want to talk about it in too much detail. However, uh, Strasser notes that it is very convincing because there are a lot more tools in situ, uh, which is basically undisturbed in the actual um, layers of soil. It is a quarry site littered with Mousterian stone tools. Other Mousterian tools have been found on the islands of Cephalonia and 
Zaconithus. However, again, caution must be used. Nikos F. Stratouche, an archaeologist at Aristotle University in Thessalonica in Greece, uh, found a site on Lemnos that dates back more than 10,000 years. However, he says there's no definitive answer to the question of when Lembos actually became cut off from the mainland, because of course there was an ice age and all of the seas dropped, and so a lot of land became connected that wasn't that isn't connected today. And so more research will be needed to compare stone tools found on the islands and those on the mainland more carefully to connect them properly. But researchers are already starting to think about what happens next. We severely miscalculated, admits Runnels. If the evidence bears out that there were ancient hominids in the Greek Isles, he notes, the seas were more permeable than we thought. So, very interesting. Okay, so we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk about this story because I just think it's hilarious in a sort of like, oh, that's a shame kind of way. Um, and so uh, you may have heard, we're going to, we're going to speed up into uh, the 21st century. And we're going to briefly talk about the internet of things. So that is basically devices that are connected to the internet, your refrigerator, your baby monitor, uh, your fancy lights that connect to your iPhone. Um, as you all already may have suspected, those are susceptible to hacking just as much as your actual computer. And so according to a recently released report, hackers recently uh, attempted to hack into the database of a casino somewhere in North America via the internet connection of a fish tank. So the fish tank apparently had sensors connected to a PC so it could regulate the temperature, food, and cleanliness of the tank. Somebody got into the fish tank and used it to move around into other areas and sent and sent out data, says Justin Fire, cybersecurity firm Dark Traces Director of Cyber Intelligence. Now, they didn't disclose any of the details in particular, but they did note that 10 gigabytes of data were extracted and sent to an IP address in Finland. This is one of the most entertaining and clever thinking by hackers I've seen, said Hemnu Nigman. Nigam, a former federal prosecutor for computer crimes and current chief executive of SSP Blue, another cybersecurity company. Now, the FBI has actually put out warnings recently saying, you know, these objects can be used as backdoors into your network. Um, but of course, cyber crimes are still relatively new. And so neither the law nor regulatory bodies have caught up yet. So uh, word of caution, be very aware of your devices, always be updating to the latest operatings, um, operating services, um, and check what kind of security protocols are available. You do not want your refrigerator uh, being a gateway to someone cleaning out your bank account. Okay, so uh, that is all for tonight. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.